Well, good morning, everyone. Let me add my welcome to you. You can go ahead and grab a seat. My name is Preston. If I don't know you, uh, hi, welcome. I'm one of the pastors here at St. Peter's, and it's a delight to have you all here today. Wow, we got Alistair and Julia right here front and center. So it's been a long time. <laughs> oh, yeah, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> will, you, uh, will you join me in prayer as we begin today? Living God, we come to you with gratitude for your word. Thank you for the gospel of Luke. Thank you that it's been uh, written down by uh, the Dr. Luke so many years ago and copied over and over again until it has gotten to us today to hear your words. So we ask, Lord, that you will uh, open us to you today. Will you come and speak as only you can, Holy Spirit? Will you come now and uh, teach us about your kingdom? Uh, teach us about your kingdom, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we uh, re-enter Luke's sermon on the plain today. Uh, well, it's Jesus' sermon on the plain. is told by Luke. Um, and so last week, uh, Lloyd got us into this a little bit, this, this part of the sermon with um, some, some really light teachings about loving your enemies and doing the good to those who hate you and all the rest. Uh, so today, we're going to carry on in that section of the sermon. Before we get going, I want to acknowledge a weird ambiguity about some of these passages. They're really familiar to a lot of us. Like we've heard, if you've been in church at all, you've probably heard some of these teachings of Jesus. Um, not all of you, and that's, that's okay, I'm not assuming that, but a lot of you have heard these sayings before. And if you have, you, you know they're the most well-known, but also some of the most difficult to actually do something with to live out. Like, everyone knows we're supposed to love our enemies, but man, like, it's one of the hardest things to actually do, too. What Jesus is calling us to in this chunk of text, in, in the sermon, is not easy, is it? It's just not easy. And I just want to say that up front. I believe, really, some of what he says today, and what Michael just read for us, is some of the more difficult pieces of formation that he asks of us, especially in today's world and the world we live in. It's not impossible. I want to say that too. It's not, this isn't impossible, but it's not easy. So today, here's what we'll do. I first just want to clarify what Jesus is and isn't saying in this passage. Uh, what's he talking about? And then I want to also talk about why, why this matters to God, whether we live this way or not, that Jesus paints for us. And lastly, I'll give you just one invitation to wrap up. That's the plan. I also just want to say, if you're listening today and you're not sure if you want to follow Jesus or if you don't follow Jesus, well, listen closely to this too. Uh, this way of living that Jesus describes is different and difficult, yes, but again, it's not impossible. And it's the way of life that Jesus says is true life. It looks different from the world. Life that has, to, has the potential to actually open up relationships on a personal level and a public level into freedom and blessing that I think, to be honest, most of us have given up on in a lot of contexts. Jesus says we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't give up on it. So let's see what he has to say. Again, we're midway through this sermon in Luke's gospel in chapter 6. Last week, Lloyd unpacked uh, those, those things about... Um, doing good to those who hate you and loving your enemies, and Jesus' teaching of non-retaliation, just a few easy things. But Lloyd 
helped me remember this point with an illustration that really landed, that really stuck with me throughout the week. <laughs> he reminded me that the only way I can walk into this way of life is receiving the abundance of God's love and goodness to me that never runs out like the ketchup dispenser at Costco. <laughs> never runs out. It's just massive. Like you go to put it on your hot dog and it's just, you could do it all day long. And I love ketchup. And so, yeah, when I go to McDonald's these days and they just drop like two packets in the bag, like I just have to face the shame of like, can I have a couple more? No, like a couple more. Like one isn't enough. I need more ketchup. It's a great image. It really helped me. Uh, and Jesus spells out the logic again in verse 36. He says, be merciful, but you're only called to be merciful even as your Father is merciful to you, as God pours his mercy upon you like that never-ending ketchup machine. The command to live mercifully is given to people who've already encountered the mercy of God so they can live merciful lives. That's the logic. That's the starting point. Again, this is easy to say. It's easy to stitch on a pillow if you're good at stitching, not me, uh, but not so easy to live this way. And then Jesus goes on. He keeps, he keeps diving in. Uh, verses 37 to 38. We'll look at that again right now. So um, look at chapter 6, verse 37 to 38. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Jesus gives two negative commands and then two positive commands uh, in this section. And the two negative commands are really restatements of some positive things he's already said. What I mean is that he says, do not judge or condemn. And this is really expanding on what he's already said to love your enemies, because you're most likely to judge or condemn the people who you would plop into the enemy category, right? So do not judge or condemn. He says, if you stay away from these things, you will not be judged or condemned. And on the other hand, do forgive and give freely. And if you do these things, you will be forgiven and given generously to the four, the four go together, shaping a picture of how we're supposed to be merciful as God is merciful to us. We'll start with the two negative commands. The two negative commands, judging and condemning. Whew, that's heavy stuff. It describes an attitude that I think we're all familiar with, of superiority, of distance, sometimes harshness. Now, it's important, really important we understand what Jesus is and isn't saying here, and to know the difference between judging and condemning, like he's talking about on the one hand, and discernment on the other. So what Jesus prohibits is not about evaluating whether something is right or wrong. This is discernment, and it's necessary and commanded throughout the Bible. We must do this. And so to avoid confusion, even as I'm talking today, uh, and especially around the word judge, because that word is used positively and negatively in the New Testament, depending on the context, I'm just going to try to avoid that word so we don't get confused, and instead draw a distinction between condemnation, 
the bad thing, and discernment, the helpful, important thing. I went to my dentist not long ago. Anyone been to the dentist recently? Yeah, great fun. Um, and the dentist, my dentist, uh, I know him, he, he did what he always does. He looked into my mouth and examined my teeth and determined whether they were healthy or not and told me about it. Uh, then he re reports it to me, and then, if needed, he prescribes to me a necessary treatment, or maybe I need to adjust a habit, like stopping chewing my gums, because it wrecks the inside of my mouth. Uh, but he's doing what he must do. He's doing what I pay him to do, discerning whether or not my teeth are healthy or decaying. But what if I went to the dentist, what if you went to the dentist, and after he looked in your mouth, he, he pulled up his chair beside you and said, do you have any idea what's going on in your mouth? You are disgusting. <laughs> your teeth are hopeless. They're going to rot out, and it's really all of your fault from all that Halloween candy you've been eating over and over, taking from your kids, so you really deserve it. In fact, just get out. Just get out of my office. You're not even worthy of my time. Get out. <laughs> and I laugh because my dentist is like the nicest guy, so <laughs> picturing him doing this is really funny. The dentist has moved from discerning whether my teeth are healthy or not to condemning me. I want him to discern whether my teeth are healthy or not. I need that. And he can do that without feeling hate or contempt or viewing me as hopeless, beyond the pale. Condemnation uh, means that. It's this hardness of heart towards those that you see in the wrong. When I condemn you, I exclude you from my heart. When I condemn, I exclude you from my heart. That's painful, but the really painful part of it is that when I condemn someone else, instead of allowing God's mercy, be merciful as I am merciful to you, instead of allowing God's mercy to flow through me to others, I act as a dam. I don't allow God's mercy and loving kindness to flow through me to the person I condemn. I cut them off from it. I exclude them from my heart and from the opportunity for them to encounter God through me, through an interaction or a relationship. Condemnation, it carries an air of superiority. It's smug. What a great word, smug. You know what it means just by saying it, don't you? Smug. It needs no definition. It's better than you thinking. And it sounds ugly and horrible when I lay it all out this way, doesn't it? When we just name it. But in reality, condemnation is a prime way our society interacts and influences or tries to influence one another. Let others feel the weight of your disapproval. And that'll change them. That'll get them in line. Exclude them from your heart. Again, this isn't about whether we disagree with one another on a myriad of topics. We will, of course we will, and we must do that, and we must speak about it. It's not about whether my teeth are healthy or not. I want the dentist to judge my teeth and tell me the truth about it. This is about our posture towards one another. And it's one of the hardest things I think Jesus calls us to in this time. Because condemnation is just the norm for how people disagree. 
Let them feel the weight of your disapproval. You know, the, you know how it goes. Can you believe those people who still aren't vaccinated? What is wrong with them? They're ruining it for everyone. It serves them right if they get sick. Do you condemn those people? Be careful. They might be sitting beside you right now. Or can you believe all those people just lining up to get a shot without thinking? Do you condemn those people? You see, whenever you're inclined to think about those people, whoever those people are, you're on thin ice. Be careful. The spirit of condemnation is likely lurking nearby. I also think we have to watch ourselves with how we think about generations these days. I hear this a lot, too. There seems to be a quiet war going on about which generation is at fault for everything in the world. Is it boomer entitlement that's ruined it all? Or us millennials having our avocado toast every morning that's ruining everything? Or is it Gen Z over there, lost on their phones, soon going to vanish into the metaverse? There's no more hope. Which group do you think is beyond hope? Do you feel smug towards? Well, this is heavy stuff. As I was working on this sermon, the really convicting area for me was actually seeing how the spirit of condemnation comes also right to the closest relationships we have. Closeness can actually create contempt in those areas that rub against you day after day like a blister in a shoe. C.S. Lewis once noted how he was often struck uh, not at the rudeness of children to their parents, but of parents to their children, young or grown. He says this, Who has not been the embarrassed guest at a family meal where the father or mother treated their grown-up offspring with an incivility? which offered to any other young people would simply have terminated the acquaintance. Anyone been to one of those family meals? It's a little awkward. Do you know those sorts of families or, or the family who prides themselves on the fact that we're family? We can say anything to each other. It's true. A lot of families do operate this way, don't they? But it's also deeply wrong. You know how wrong it is, too, if you've been on the receiving end of some of that family condemnation that can cut so close to the heart, or on the giving end. It's the sting of that comment, isn't it, or even the look that can be given that you make to your spouse that you know will just tap into her deepest insecurity, or the cutting remark from a parent or a child that makes you lash out. Or if you're like me, when you get that remark, you just protect hedgehog into resentment and silence. Condemnation is what it is. And it is an effective tool, that's why people use it, to control people, at least in the short term. In the short term, it does. But the problem is, as Jesus says, it returns. And it returns as poison. Jesus says, condemn, and it's and expected in return. Sometimes, yeah, in a direct attack or remark, of course that happens. But in close relationships, sometimes it's more subtle, the return, the boomerang. 
It could be in quiet passive aggressiveness, or it could be laying a burden of perfectionism or shame on a child or a young person that develops over time into distance and distrust and rebellion or more. And boomerang. Some of you know this because you've received it, haven't you? If you sow condemnation, it will be reaped in the world, in your life and in the world around you. This is what Jesus is saying, and they're seeds of death. And at the end of the day, people don't see the kingdom of the heavens in your life. That's his concern. That's why this matters to God. The kingdom of the heavens is crushed in that life, and no one in the world sees it. Well, what's the other way? Jesus says to forgive and give generously. Instead of judging and condemning, he says release people from their faults and failures. What? Hear the message translation of this. I like it. Don't condemn those who are down. That hardness can boomerang. Be easy on people, and you'll find life a lot easier. Give away your life, and you'll find life given back, but not merely given back, given back with bonus and blessing. Giving, not getting, is the way. Generosity begets generosity. Okay, Eugene, easier said than done again. But again, I want to say it's not impossible to live this way. It's not. We can be people who do this. And when we do, we open ourselves to the beauty of God's power flowing through us to others. Now, I've been waiting a long time to find the right moment to get to use a sermon illustration from Ted Lasso, and now is the moment. I've joined, Deanna and I have joined the ranks of all of you good folk who watch this show, and I just learned Rob just started watching season one, so there is a spoiler alert in season one, if that's you, sorry, but I'm doing it anyways. <laughs> this is a fascinating show a lot of people are enraptured with, and it's funny, Jason Sudeikis, the creator recently said he's shocked at the popularity of this show in the United States because it's based on two things Americans hate, soccer and kindness. <laughs> How do they like it? <laughs> but it's striking also in moments at the image and idea of Christian redemption displayed. And I just want to give you one of those. Um, particularly Jesus' point here on the generative quality the life-giving quality of forgiveness and generosity towards others. So this character, Rebecca, the woman, is an owner of a soccer club in London, and she hires Ted Lasso, a highly optimistic, see-the-best-in-everyone, gregarious coach from the U.S., I think it's Indiana, as a new manager of this club, but she does so expecting and hoping he fails. This will surely spite her ex-husband, who was horrible to her, an unfaithful husband, and she wants to spite him and drive the club into the ground, so she does everything she can to make Ted fail without him knowing, undercutting him, going behind his back to set him up to fail over and over again. But Ted, this character, is relentlessly generous and optimistic and caring towards Rebecca and refuses to not see the good in her. And at the end of the season, you have this powerful scene where Rebecca's sabotage is discovered, and she's forced, she doesn't do it on her own accord, but she's forced to confess to Ted all the horrible things she's done to him. 
She goes into his office and, and really powerful, just admits it all, lays it all out. This is what I did. And she says, if you want to quit or call the press, I'll completely understand. But to her shock, to her amazement, Ted sits with it for a moment and he forgives her. And it's not even light. It's not even just skimming the surface. He sees the depth of her pain, and he forgives her. And this strong, beautiful friendship is then formed. It's generated out of forgiveness. It gives life. It's the opposite of condemnation. What could have happened in this moment? See, God doesn't promise us people will respond this way. <laughs> That they'll, that'll always go well. It's not a tit-for-tat karma situation. If we forgive, then it's always going to go well. God does promise that he will always respond this way to us. But when we choose forgiveness over condemnation, we reflect God's mercy to the world. It's not what is expected. And as Christians, we get to create opportunities for others to come to the loving kindness of Jesus, which is one of the most amazing things we can do in our lives to allow God's spirit to work through forgiveness and generosity to others. And it is stronger, the spirit of forgiveness and generosity is the spirit of God, and it is stronger than the spirit of condemnation, which is frankly the spirit of Satan. Which of these do you want to leave with people? Those closest to you, whom you love, and your enemies. Now, some of you may be wondering, well, don't we need sometimes to keep others in line? Like, yeah, we don't want to heap this stuff on them, but uh, how does this not devolve? How does this not just unravel into this way of living where it's just, you do you over there, and I'm not going to kind of get in the way or just let you do your thing? Well, let me remind you of the dentist again. We want discernment to know what is right and wrong. That's good and important, and the New Testament teaches that there are times when we discern to speak to one another, to a fellow believer, but this will always be gracious and gentle. There's several places in the New Testament that help us with this, but one is Galatians 6, 1 to 2. So I want to briefly look at that. Paul writes this, Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore that one in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. We can draw a few points here from using that discerning judgment towards our brothers and sisters. Four points. One, this is just towards our brothers and sisters in the family of God. So we're not called to hold others to these sorts of standards. Two, we are to restore in a spirit of gentleness. It's about restoration, restoring not about making a point, never about shaming. The spirit of gentleness is required. Three, the correction is done by someone who is, what Paul says, spiritual or walking by the spirit, meaning they're pursuing the way of the kingdom, meaning they are pursuing mat maturity, and it requires maturity to do this sort of thing. And not everyone is ready for that, frankly. It's not easy. At the least, it requires self-examination of our own hearts before we correct one another. And four, and lastly, we have to be ready to take that burden on our own shoulders, bear one another's burdens. See, if you're ready to correct, 
Paul says you're ready to bear that burden with them together, not just to point it out and walk away, but for the long haul. You can't just slide out of the picture. Once you do it, you're in. You've got to bear it together. So we have to ask, am I, you know, am I aware too? If I'm going to correct someone, am I aware that I could be that person caught in the same sort of thing? Am I willing to walk with another towards restoration? And all of this is really describing the process of what Jesus gets at in verses 41 to 42, that taking the log out of my own eye so that I can see to remove the speck from my sister or brother's eye. The log in my own eye, what Jesus means, is that desire or inclination to condemn. At this point, you may be feeling like, wow, that sounds like a lot of hard work. How could we do this? And you're right, it is hard. Condemnation is much, much easier. I'll tell you that, it is. But I warned you, this is hard stuff that Jesus calls us to here, especially in our day when condemnation is the way. And let's be honest too, if you've ever tried this, the reality is that uh, some, some people aren't going to take it well. Even if you do it right and examine your, yourself and, and all of it, you still may offend someone. And one of the reasons I think is that it's so hard for one another to receive these sorts of things is that our identities are so tied to our actions in our world today. You are what you do. And it's difficult to separate them out. But, but if you are a new creation in Jesus, if you are found in him, then your identity is in him. Jesus owns me. Jesus owns you. He defines me, and guess what? I'm going to mess things up. I promise you I am, aren't I? <laughs> Amen, because I'm human. I'm going to mess things up. And guess what? I'm also free to be corrected when I mess things up because I'm not defined by my mistakes. And that's the good news. I'm not defined by them. I'm defined by the mercy of God in my life, and that is good news so I'm free to live generously, to live lightly, to live graciously towards others because they don't define me. I'm free to walk with others' burdens and their failings and be slow to speak. I don't have to always jump in and make a point. And if they don't take it well when I do and they condemn me, well, I know that Jesus, who is the Lord of the universe, doesn't condemn me. And he's alive and he is for me. And he holds me no matter what anyone says. So I'm free. I can forgive. I can give. I can be merciful as God is merciful. I can stop condemning people I don't like or who upset me or who irritate me. I can disagree with them, but I don't have to condemn them. And I can live in the kingdom. Again, it is possible. Jesus gives us a warning right in the middle of this passage give it to you now. He says, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. He asks here, he asks us, who's your teacher? Who are you following? Are they blind? I hope not, because uh, you'll probably fall into a pit. His point is, you have a teacher. You are being trained by someone. 
And you will become like that teacher. It's just a matter of time. So who are the people who influence you? Who do you follow? Who fills your feeds? Who blares through your earbuds on the bus? Who shapes your ideas? What do they teach? What way do they teach? How do they treat others? How do they talk about others? Are they smug or condescending or happy to just say, just do what feels right to you? Measure them. Measure them because you're being trained. Here's verses 41 to 42 again in the message. I think it's really helpful. It's easy to see a smudge on your neighbor's face and be oblivious to the ugly sneer on your own. Do you have the nerve to say, let me wash your face for you, when your own face is distorted by contempt? It's this I know better than you mentality again, playing a holier-than-thou part instead of just living your own part. Wipe that ugly sneer off your own face, and you might be fit to offer a washcloth to your neighbor. So here's the one invitation as we wrap up. Do you want to stop condemning others in your heart and live a generous, forgiving life in the kingdom? Do you want to? You have to decide because it's not something you're just going to slide into doing by, by default. It's the opposite of the default. Do you want to get the log of condemnation out of your eye? And know that Jesus is here. He's not just teaching these things and saying, go figure it out. No, he's here. He's inviting us. He's inviting me and you to walk with him, and he'll help you. He'll walk with you. And there's people here, me and others, who would love to talk more about the how. We can't get into deep uh, conversation about that today, but we can talk more about it. How do you do this? It's hard. But I would love to talk about that if you're wondering and asking that question. But the first step, I know he invites us to, because Jesus always invites us to this, is to repent. And that's the invitation. Repentance is a turn of direction. It's a turn of thought and action and then moving in another direction. And in this scenario, it starts with saying, this is a place in my heart where I've wrongly excluded someone, where, I, where I've gotten in the way, where I've demeaned my family member or those people over there, those people. I've treated this person wrongly and I repent. And God, I need your mercy to fill me, fill me with your mercy so that I can live mercifully too. It looks like, that's what it looks like. Amen.